This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Fleur MacDonald, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks for having me. I just can't believe we've never met. I just no, this, is, this is our first time. Yeah, <laughs> virgins together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you've been writing for how many years now? Oh, well, the first book, Red Dust, came out in 2009. So, wow. yeah, it's been a while. It's been wow. a while. I've been around. Okay. All right, let me introduce you and then I'm, I'm going to find out how you came to writing. Uh, Fleur MacDonald is a best-selling author from South Australia who now lives in Esperance in Western Australia. She has written 18 rural suspense novels and has garnered the title of The Voice of the Outback. Her latest novel is Deception Creek. Fleur also founded a not-for-profit called DV Assist, helping people based in rural communities who have experienced domestic violence and she is the secretary of the Esperance Agricultural Society which lobbies on issues that affect the community and industry. Just all of that in your spare time, right? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. So, yeah, so you've been writing for a while. I want to know how you came to Tell me firstly about where you grew up. Oh, I grew up in this little town, little blip of a town called Oruru at the base of the Flinders Ranges mm-hmm. uh, and it was a beautiful little town to grow up in. It was very friendly and small and we were able to roam freely and basically, you know, do what we wanted to do. It was one of those, well, this was showing my age, but, yeah, probably about the time that you were just able to go home when the street lights came on and your mum stuck her head out the door and yelled for you it was tea time and it was lovely you know just being able to jump on your bike and ride down to the pool or go down to the footy oval I used to be a long distance runner and go down to the footy oval and train and and so forth so yeah no it was lovely lovely little town and I I love it still you know I've got a real affinity with Oru and uh you know every time I go back there it's like you know, you've gone home and you can breathe that sigh of relief because you're just home, you know. Have you still so, got family there? Yeah, I do. My mum and my dad uh, have got a station <clears throat> uh, a little bit north of Oruru mm-hmm. and we've still got property there. And my sister is uh, in a little town just a little further over called Bullaroo Centre and my brother is in Adelaide. So, you know, a lot, and I haven't seen... Um, I haven't seen them for a couple of years with coronavirus around, so I'll be looking forward to everyone getting vaccinated so we can get back and I can get back over there, get these WA borders open. Everyone else is, but we're having a few troubles. So what I want to ask you is when you were little, were you a great reader? Like were you reading? Did you ever at all think you were going to be a writer or did that seem just not a job in your eyes back then? Yeah, that is really funny because I 
never gave the authors any consideration. You know, we, I would read these books and I'd be immersed in the story and the pages and loving what I was reading, but never gave the authors any thought. And then when I did think about them, you know, they're all dead. It didn't seem like a great career choice, you know. So we've got Edith Blythe <laughs> and, and, you know, all of those, uh, you know, these great, um, Susan, uh, what was her last name? Is it Coolidge? I think her last name is who wrote the What Katie Did series. And, you know, they were, they're all dead. So, uh, and, you know, it's nothing like now where, you know, we talk to everybody and we interview and people uh, get to hear us. So they, they, was, they were very untouchable type. It seemed a very untouchable type career. Um, but, yeah, always read. Um, and I think that that's given me a lot of the ability to subconsciously know how to structure a book, you know, uh, and coming from a long line of storytellers it, in my family, it seemed like a, once I realised that I was okay at it, it seemed like a reasonably good career choice. But, you know, I was busy on the farm and had little kids and, and those types of things. So it wasn't. Did you say that your family were storytellers? Did you have writers in your family? Well, I have. My nana used to sit uh, sit us grandkids, our us cousins down, and uh, she would stand in front of the fire and hoist up her skirt and warm her bum as she was telling us all these amazing stories, you know, about spindles, this pet goanna, and uh, yeah, any any other story that she would she would tell us. So yeah, that I grew up imagining pictures in my mind from the stories that Nana told us. And then my dad has the ability to tell a story where, you know, it starts off a little molehill and suddenly it explodes into this massive mountain of a story that half of it's not true. Um, and you never know. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't no, matter. You never know with <laughs> dad because he's got such a straight face. So, um, yeah, anyway, so that was, so I guess, yeah, I do. I come from a long line of storytellers. And my cousin is Tanya Heaslip and she's released three books with, with Alan and Alan as well, memoirs. So, so there's oh, a few. Wow. And, my, and my other cousins... And my brother are storytellers in their own different way. Like they're they're musicians and they write, oh, yeah. they write songs and and my brother transposes um, music from piano to marimba. He's a marimba player. So we're all storytellers in our own different what right. Mm. When I interview people of uh, some people from other cultures, like say for instance the Sudan, or even some of the Asian countries, they tell me that they've been orators. You know, they're oh, even Aboriginal people, of course. That storytelling was really about the oral storytelling, and you know, it's sometimes people come to writing quite late, but they've been telling stories for a very long time. Yeah, that's right, and I think that you can because that it's ingrained in them. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't you love it when people tell a great story and then somebody else at the table decides to tell a story and they just <laughs> never have, you know, some people just can't get an oral story out, can they? Right. I mean, you know, and I'm not being critical. I reckon I'm good at oral stories, but I can't write. So I think you've just got to know where your skill set is. <laughs> oh, yeah, and look, I reckon if I was to tell you a story orally, uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't have the same impact as what, what books can do because I yeah. stutter stumble and arm um and ah and yeah I can yeah. tell little kids stories to little like my nieces and nephews and they love it but I'm never one to tell a great story at the kitchen at the dinner table over at a dinner party so then you know tell me your trajectory to to writing so did you then you know what did you do what did you think you were going to be 
Oh, well, when I uh, when I first left school, so I, I was, what would you, I was incredibly rebellious and I wanted to do the absolute opposite to what mum and dad wanted me to do. So I always uh, knew that I loved the land and I wanted to be a farmer, but it was really unusual when I first started uh, working on farms for a woman to work on a farm that wasn't her parents or her husband. So tell me a little bit more about that. Were you brought up on a farm? Because I really know, want to know where that came from. Or did you go and work for farmers? How did that all happen? So like I grew up in Oruru, so mum and dad were fuel distributors, but my Nana and Papa on my mum's side and my uncle on, like, my mum's brother, they had always been on the land, always on station country. And for whatever reason, I just, it just flows through me. You know, that is my favourite. And I was just saying to a friend the other day, you know, it's been two years since I've been back to home to Glenroy and um, I'm just getting a little homesick. You know, I I need to go back and see that country and sit on the edge of the creek and and have a coffee and just listen to the galahs and those types. I need to do that regularly and I haven't done it for a while. So I think that that's where that love of the land came from, um, having always... And what did you do on the land? Talk to me about your jobs. What did a normal day look like? Because I was born in inner city, Glebe. I just can't even imagine. Yeah, so when I left school, I went and worked down at a place uh, called Wanderabee, just uh, a couple of hours south of Adelaide. And that was where I got my motorbike licence. And we had Angus cattle down there. So I was working for Perry and Richard Gunner. And they had an Angus, uh, ran huge amounts of Angus cattle. And they also had a white suffix stud. So uh, we would shift cattle uh, once every week. They're on a rotation, so on a loosened block. So we would, they would graze one paddock. So the paddocks were in four and then cut into quarters. So you'd have the cattle in one quarter and then a week later you'd shift them across. You know, we would lamb mark, we would calf mark, then we would make hay. Um, there was a bit of cropping involved. Uh, so, you know, that sort of kept us really busy. That's and a then- long day. But I, and I can remember, especially down in Meningi, you know, you would get out six o'clock and it would be pea soup fog and it would be freezing on the motorbike. You'd have to have your gloves and your helmet and your big jacket on and my nose would always be cold. But, yeah, I loved it. You know, that's, that's it. I just felt incredibly alive out there. And then I finished up there because that was my first job out of school, finished up there and came across to Esperance and worked on a farm out 100k's west and is that why you came to Esperance yeah it was I I wanted to go I wanted to do farm management at Marcus Oldham Farm Management College that was my intention and you had to work for two years out in the um, industry before you went to college and I'm sure that that was just to get rid of all of that energy and fun time so we concentrated on work when we got to college so I worked on um, Stuart Downs out, out here in Esperance um, for 12 months as well. I had never seen rain like it in Esperance and I had never seen clover and green feed like it. You know, come from the stony station country of the Flinders Ranges where the land is baked dry and massive cracks in the in the land with the rocks and everything is just so dry that it's brittle and it was so incredibly different and I fell in love with it over here I don't love it the same way as what I love the Flinders but I certainly love this land and it's very easy to farm when you have water not so easy to to farm when you don't and so then you went to college 
Yep. So I actually swapped out of farm management and went and did agribusiness. Farm management was a three-year course and um, agribusiness was only 12 months. I did agribusiness because I had got engaged and thought that I would, uh, well, I needed to understand how to do farm books and all that sort of stuff. I didn't have any, uh, I'm not very good at maths. Same. (laughs) Yeah, I think creatives are like that, but I'm so I needed some help with that. And, yeah, the agribusiness course I did at Marcus was really great. It stood, stood me in very good stead and, and I did the farm books for the whole time that I lived on the farm. I do my own books and, and yeah, it's... Talk uh, it to me about good. life on the farm. So you then bought your own property? Yeah, oh, I got engaged and, and married and the day that I got married was the day that we signed up our first farm. Yeah, my ex-husband wow. used to joke that uh, he halved his debt within a couple of hours of signing up the farm. <laughs> and um, that was a great experience. You know, we lived in a little Atco hut, a little donger hut tra- transportable that had uh, that didn't have any power or a toilet for a while. And then, you know, so you'd sort of wander off in the morning with your shovel and go to the loo and, and uh, then you'd sort of... The, the generator, the power that we had was a generator and I was able to start that in the afternoons, you know, sort of late afternoon and that the petrol tank held enough petrol to run for three hours so I could make a loaf of bread and do a do the bank reconciliations and the answer emails and all that sort of stuff and uh, do two loads of washing in that three-hour period. Wow. It's usually pretty busy then. What about the cooking? Oh, that was all gas and the fridge was gas. Didn't have a gas fridge for a really long time. Uh, Well, probably, I don't know, three or four months or something from when we first moved out there. And I used to have an esky that I put the milk into because I'm not one that likes long life milk. And I would put the milk into that and it would last three days. And I got so jack of it where every time you go and put, you know, try and make yourself a cup of tea and the milk would be off. I got so jack of it. I said, I got really cranky one day. I said, this is it. We're going to go and buy a gas fridge. And they were bloody expensive. You know, it's three grand for, a, you know, just like a little caravan gas fridge. But anyway, I didn't care at the time. That was that was the one thing I needed. I could do without power and I could do without a toilet, but I couldn't do without a fridge. What did you do? So what were you doing on the land? How did you make money? Uh, so we had um, prime lambs and they, they're my favourite. Like I love doing lambs. Uh, we had uh, cattle, had a, uh, had a little bit of crop. Cropping wasn't a huge part of our rotation. It, it certainly fitted, fitted in, but, you know, we would make hay um, for the cattle for summer feed um, and we had ewes, like a white suffix stud and an Angus stud cattle. And so, yeah, the but I love doing prime lambs. So prime lambs are, you know, the, the lamb chops that you'll find in the, um, in the supermarket and I hope I don't upset anybody by talking about this. But, you know, so what we would do is we would make our ewes um, and then obviously they'd have the lambs with Mark the lambs. And within 16 weeks, uh, with the genetics that we had, we would be able to send off lambs to the abattoir and then produce those, those yeah. chops that everybody eats. So, and I really, not the saddest in me, but I loved working with lambs. I loved weighing them. I loved seeing them grow. I never really liked seeing them go on the truck, but, you yeah. know, that was part of what we did. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's just, it's really interesting to me. I mean, it really is in your blood, isn't it? Oh, I love it. Yeah. And I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sad now that I physically don't, like I own land and I share farm with a friend, but I don't, um, I don't physically own any sheep anymore. And yeah. I, and I'm like, I hurt my back prolapsed disc um, three, four years ago now. And I had spinal surgery and I actually physically can't do the work that I used to do, which yeah. is really, I couldn't tell you how frustrating that yeah. is. So while you're on the land and you're working, when is it that you decided that this was a perfect landscape and a perfect life for storytelling? So one Christmas, it was the first Christmas I had ever had at my house and it was still when we were living in the little Atco hut and my mum and dad had come come over from South Australia and my mother-in-law had come out. I had the two two little kids and my kids were very difficult kids as uh, babies and my neighbour had given me Rachel Tre- Treasure's iconic book called Jillaroo yeah. and I was exhausted after getting the lunch and all that sort of stuff and I went and found myself a little quiet corner and I started to read Jillaroo and no one saw me for three hours until I finished that book yeah, wow. and I walked away from that going, yeah, I think I can do something like that. and I had been mucking around with kids books at the time because Hayden has autism and my son has autism and he was having a huge amount of trouble with his attention span so I had written books about you know things that he knew like the the sheepdogs in the yards and the pet lambs and the pet calves and I would read these to him and then I read Jillaroo and I just thought you know what I really want to have a go at that I hate saying I just sat down and wrote it because that doesn't give the people that have done creative writing courses and so on or, you know, degrees in creative writing their due. But that's in reality that's what happened. You know, I sat down, I wrote this book and, yeah, that didn't mean it didn't need a lot of edits or anything like that, but that's that's how it happened. And I'd read. And you didn't think twice about sitting down to write a book. You just thought, okay, I'm going to tell a story. Yeah, and I I got really itchy fingers. And I don't even know how I got the idea for stock stealing or sheep stealing in the Flinders Ranges at the time. Um, It just came and then my fingers literally got itchy until I had written it down. And the most bizarre thing about that was once the book had been published, it uh, wasn't very long after that, within the first three or six months, there were a heap of stock sheep stolen from the mid-north <laughs> around the same areas where I'd set the book. 
Wow. So that was quite. That was I want to go back. So, how does a girl living on uh, a, a woman living on remote property with two young children and a husband and working, you know, probably night and day, get that story published? That's another challenge, right? Look, uh, I would never ever go past the fact that I was I was just so naive, and that was a lovely thing because I didn't know how difficult it could be or would be and um you just assumed you'd get published no I didn't assume that but I didn't have any expectations about it I just the the naivety is a wonderful thing so you know like I hadn't even finished the book when I sent it into Friday Pitch with Alan and Unwin I think I'd written about a third of it or something and you know, broke every rule that there was to break when I actually did the submission. I submitted twice to the same people, let alone anything else, <laughs> offering to pay for advice or feedback on it. And I was just very lucky that Louise Sertel. Um, oh, I know Louise. Louise, I'm very, very grateful to. I was just sitting down on the patio this morning as I sat underneath my gas heater drinking my coffee on the, you know, on the morning of publication day thinking, how incredibly lucky I was that Louise, you know, saw something in red dust and she really did shape my career. So, yes, I, I just put these, I asked Louise for feedback, um, which, of course, you know, I offered to pay for it, which, of course, you, don't, you just don't do. And, yeah, broke every rule there was to break and I'm still lucky enough that I'm here. So talk to me about the editorial process because I think that's quite confronting for some people. I always think, wow, why would you knock back somebody trying to make your book? Oh, you never do. You know, that's right. Because also, too, I feel that it must be a very difficult task as well, even if you're open to it. Talk to me about it. I love editing. It's my favourite part of the book because the work's already been done. This is the editing's the easy bit. So I think I go through three stages with editing because at, at the end of the day, what I find the hardest is actually getting the story down, you know, out of the whole process, actually yeah. writing and making sure everything links in together and um, I've pulled every string there is to pull and um, I've made sure that everything is right. That's the bit that I find hard. Working with words once they're already there is, is just the best thing and okay so I go through three stages one I'll read through it and go that editor she has got no idea what she's talking about I'm not interested (laughs) denial and these are three stages of grief (laughs) yeah yeah that's right so yeah complete and total denial and then I and then I roll my eyes at some of the comments you know you'll get a comment in there like what is a header well how do you think we take the barley off or the wheat off or anything? It's a machine, you know, like how silly are you? And then uh, then I get to the second stage, which is usually, ah, oh, crap, you know what, she's actually right and I've got no idea how to fix this. <laughs> and then I swear at her even more. Yeah. Um, poor Jack, my dog, he's, my, uh, my kelpie, his ears bleed when I get my edits. And then the, the third the third part of it is, you know, that light bulb moment where you go, oh, yeah, that's yeah. that's how I fix it. Uh, and then it's easy on from there. So, And sometimes it can, you know, those uh, those first two phases may take a couple of weeks to get over and sometimes it works really quickly. But I like um, your professional approach to it. I really do. <laughs> uh, I don't know that um, I don't know that it's that professional, but anyway. <laughs> no, I don't either, but it's how I deal with it. 
Um, talk to me about the space that you're in now because I love it. We're oh, on Zoom for those listening and I can see uh, Fleur's beautiful space. I'm actually in love with the doors. Yeah, well, um, so they're barn doors. They've got beautiful wrought iron um, rails up the top and I haven't varnished them yet. They only went up about a week ago, so they need to get varnished sometime shortly. Um, and, yeah, I've got um, my whiteboards at the back and a lot of the time I used to try and convince myself I needed to plot, but I've that just does not suit my personality. Uh, so the whiteboards are where I keep all of my information on all of the characters and the timelines because if I'm going to get anything wrong, it'll be a timeline. And so, you know, so do you plan that out when you first start writing? And you no, write? and that's why I muck it up all the time. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm very much a pantser um, yeah. when it comes to writing and only because I figure that if I know what's going to happen, then, you know, the reader might work it out. So, and it was funny, I saw um, a review this morning about Deception Creek that somebody said, oh, that she had worked out where the book was going towards the end. I'm like, oh, bugger, that's not what I want. <laughs> so, yeah, so anyway, I, I sort of just keep all of my details up there, you know, the names of the characters, because sometimes, you know, you might have seven, eight, ten characters in a book, maybe more, and I forget who they are. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've got to go back and, and check. So I've got my whiteboards and I've got, I, you can't see it, but on that, so I've got this little table here that Men and Sheds made that have got these encyclopedias. I can I see that, just, yeah. Oh, okay. That you can use as the stand and then it's got a wooden thing. On top of that, there's a box. And inside of that is uh, one of those really beautiful old typewriters that have got the individual keys on them and the ones oh, we use yeah. back and forth. So a friend of mine gave me that um, about a year ago and it's just, I guess it's a bit of a prop, but I love it. You know, it's a beautiful old typewriter. And are you disciplined enough? Because I'm getting the impression that that uh, the approach is unique here. <laughs> just use that word. <laughs> and I hope you are listening to this. I'm unique. <laughs> and it's my publisher. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So do you come into this space, like, do you do, like, regular 9 to 5 or 10 to 4 or no? I think you know the answer to that already. <laughs> I do know the <laughs> No, look, I don't. This is a one of those things that I, I do as I say, not as I do. I turn up and I write, like I'll write every day. You've got to, I do believe you have to write every day. As uh, as hard as I try to be, to sit down and do those, um, you know, nine to five type days, it's really not me and I get a little bit frustrated if I'm chained to the chair all the time. So I sit and write. I don't ever wait for the muse to strike because you can't do that writing two books a year, but I do tend to... Um, I don't know. I just sit and write when I can and when I when I want to. Sometimes I'll sit and write for 15 minutes and other times I'll write for three or four hours in one hit. As much as my office looks beautiful, I don't like writing in here. I sit outside on the patio underneath the gum tree, go out to the farm. Yeah, you know, that's that type of thing. So, yeah, yeah, I'm reasonably unorthodox. Yeah, someone said to me the other day I was a free spirit and um, I never really thought about that, but that probably does suit me a little bit. So Deception Creek, mm. tell us what that's about. Two, two main characters, which is probably a bit different to what I normally would do. Um, and you know, normally my it would be that Emma Cameron who would be the main character and everyone else sort of slotted in around her, but I had 
Joel Hammond is a criminal who's just been released from jail and he, as I was writing, he was as loud as what, he was louder than actually what Emma was and they were really jostling for, to who was going to be the main character. Uh, and I think we've come to a happy medium now where they're both joint main characters, but they're both running a really different um, storyline for both of them. So Emma is uh, a farmer. She's she's come home to Deception Creek. Uh, she's experienced, she was first on scene at a really traumatic car accident 10 years previously, and she still has got a bit of post-traumatic stress from that. So she's run home to where she's safe and comfortable and Joel has done exactly the same thing. You know, he has been released from prison and he has run to his hometown, which just again happens to be Barker. Poor old Barker. It's ended up being the Australian version of Midsummer. Mm-hmm. And um, and funnily enough, you know, obviously that's where Dave is. And, and Joel coming home has sort of awakened a lot of um, memories I suppose for people in Barker because he was involved in an incident that was very very traumatic you know some some years before and country towns have really long memories and they can hold grudges for even longer and so that was so Joel's homecoming is very very bittersweet for him Whereas Emma, you know, she's been accepted back into the community again. She's got a group of friends and she's happy. And Emma, I thought, was going to be easy to write because she's going through a lot of these same emotions as what I went through when I first got divorced. You know, she's going through the loneliness. She's going through the, my life hasn't turned out the way I thought it was going to turn out. And I'm Did really I make the right decisions? And yeah. yeah, all of that type of thing. And so I thought, oh, yeah, she'll be really easy to write. I'll just, you know, write about my experiences. And she's actually, like, she wasn't going to have that. You know, she um, she is a very different person to who I am and experienced those feelings differently and reacted differently to how I would have reacted as well. So as much as there's certainly a bit of me in her, she's reacted very differently to the way I would have. And the funny thing about this is she was so lonely that she wanted to dabble with online um, dating and of course I've never done that before and I'm asking the kids all about it you know because my kids are 20 and 21 now and I'm going oh has anyone been on tinder like how do we work this <laughs> and they were very good they navigated this online dating world with me um for for a little while with much embarrassment and some conversations I'm sure uh, which mums and kids shouldn't have but it was so hilarious I was signing up to one of these sites just so I could see the inside of the site because oh, research know, absolutely it was I, it was because I'm, <laughs> I'm still completely single like, it was total research anyway I'm because you can't see inside these sites unless you actually sign up You're there. So, yeah. Here I am, Rochelle and Hayden are out in the kitchen and I'm signing up and I'm going, does anyone know how to do this? Like, what goes on here? And then I went, oh, my God, they want my phone number. And Rochelle sticks her head and she goes, well, give it to them. I went, no, 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 I don't want them to have my phone number. And then we got all the way through and in the end I didn't even click submit. I shut the thing down because I was so horrified that I was doing something like that. So then I just found some friends who have already done it. <laughs> I mean, you know, they are, I think sometimes um, rural fiction, rural fiction itself gets, you know, put into a category. But in actual fact, it's fiction and these are human stories and people are vulnerable and people are looking for a way. So 
The book's called Deception Creek. You're a wonderful storyteller, Flo. Congratulations. Thank thank you you so much. much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.